night, church. We were there in 2 Kings 13, and uh, we have obviously some interesting, an interesting text. And um, uh, I'll just say right now, there's 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 a lot of names, there's a lot of kind of time markers, there's a lot of events. Some of them will seem strange to us. There's a lot going on here, and in a, a passage like this, and we'll cover a lot of ground this morning. Uh, I guess my my encouragement to you this morning is, as you think about this next 40 to 50 minutes, we'll see, um, what is this moment for? Um, It's not just to understand what is happening in the text. Um, That, trust me, I, I have the best job in in this room. I can assure you of that. I get to study the scriptures and pray. Read books, evangelize, um, counsel people, just shepherd the flock, and I get food on the table to do this. And I mean, I thank God for it. But one of the challenges of the job each week is to not just, it would be easy to come in here and give you a running commentary of everything that's going on in this chapter. Uh, That's not a lot of work. There's plenty of helps to do that. The hard part is not to just understand what is here. Why is this here? Why has God put this passage in here? Why, why are we opening it this morning? What does God want to teach us uh, from this? Why has this been recorded for us? And so I want you to really listen for the why. And, and, and as you think, you have an outline that's provided in your bulletin and, and use that. You can take notes. If you don't want to take notes, I'd rather you just listen if, that, if it helps you just to listen. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've read this quote before, but I, I think it, I was thinking about it just this morning and printed it off. This is from Jonathan Edwards. Um, he says, the main benefit obtained by preaching is by impression made upon the mind at the time and not by an effect that arises afterwards by a remembrance of what was delivered. And though an after remembrance of what was heard in the sermon is oftentimes very profitable, yet for the most part, that remembrance is from an impression, the words made on the heart at that time. And the memory profits as it renews and increases that impression. Now, there's a lot there, and I, I, I realize. But one of the things that says that, that um, is the person who's really with me in preaching is not the person who gets down everything that I say on notes. I want you to be engaged with what God is speaking to your heart through the text this morning. And and so I I, I just ask you, as we pray even now, um, pray that God would, uh, by His Spirit, give you the ability to so concentrate and that, that your heart would be receptive to the impression that the Lord would want to make on your heart that will continue to linger on into this week. So let's pray to that end now. Father, we do ask God, we... We pray, Father, for now, as, as we walk through this uh, long text and we see a lot of names that we're not familiar with and we, and we see a lot of repetition, God, in the sins and the failures of these kings of Israel, God, I pray, Father, that you would not allow the, uh, the, that repetition of the text, God, to in any way communicate uh, dullness, God. But I pray, Father, by your Spirit, you would excite our hearts to see your hand at work in this passage and that what you want to communicate to your people, God, why you've recorded for the, this, this text for us, God, that it would be clear. Help me not to, not to confuse the what and the why, not to, 
Not to miss the main point of the passage, but not just to get it, but to communicate it clearly and help the ears of everyone in this room to hear it and uh, guard us from distraction, guard us. We know our minds are prone to wonder and to think about what's coming later this afternoon and, and later this morning even, God, and we may hear rumbles of thunder and we'll, our minds will go to that and checking radar and all of those things, God, but God, just help us to concentrate uh, that you would... You would carve deep, deep, deep impressions on our hearts today, God, through your word, by your spirit. Uh, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're there in Second Kings chapter 13. I'll read some names to you and see you try to figure out what these names have in common. Some of you will quickly. Lance Armstrong. Barry Bonds. Joe Paterno. Pete Rose, Mike Tyson, O.J. Simpson, Tiger Woods, and for the ladies, Tanya Harding. (laughs) And we could go on and on and on. And what is it that, what's the common denominator between these names, between these people? Well, yeah, there's a lot of mumbling. (laughs) Let me answer for you. (laughs) It was rhetorical. That's okay. Uh, (laughs) They were all... People who were at the top of the sports world at one time, and yet because of bad behavior, behavior, um, they all came crashing down. Um, they all represent loads and loads of wasted potential, of squandered talent and opportunities that they had. Um, the history of the nation of Israel is also one of wasted potential and squandered opportunities. The, like, like no other nation in the history of the world, God was unbelievably good to them. He made them into a nation out of nothing. He, he multiplied them. He protected them. He delivered them from enemies. He gave them a land. He gave them leaders. He gave them a law. He gave them himself. He gave them everything. And yet, even when they sinned, and boy, did they ever sin and rebel against Him, He was always so slow to anger and abounding in the steadfast love toward them. But time and time and time and time again, God's goodness, God's kindness didn't lead them to repentance. But instead, they... They squandered God's kindness. They, they, they spurned His love. They rebelled against His grace over and over and over again. I mean, we're, we've seen this throughout Kings. We see it throughout Israel's history. And, and what we find, though, in, in the book of Kings, with every coronation of another king, we have this gift from God to the nation. It's another opportunity. Maybe, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the king who will, who will rule and reign in righteousness and, and, and pursue justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God and, 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 let, and let righteousness reign. It's another gracious invitation to the king and to the people to return to the Lord in, in, in exclusive devotion to Him and in loyal and loving obedience to God. Over and over again, but yet over and over again, the kings and the nation, the people that the kings lead, they, they just squander God's kindnesses. 
And, and the full price of those wasted opportunities is going to be paid. And it's going to be paid. We'll see it in just a few weeks with, with the northern tribes of Israel in chapter 17. And we'll see it at the end of the book for Judah. But this is the big idea. This is what I want you to catch. You know, what I was saying before we, I prayed a moment ago. That, that, that it's like this. Even when we sing. You don't remember. You didn't sit there and write. I hope you didn't. Write down every word that we sang and, and have it rehearsed. But you'll remember a line. Jesus is better. Oh, behold our God seated on the throne. Let's adore him. This is what I want you to remember from this text. And don't get lost. And for all the trees, let's see the forest. And it's this, is that there is a high price to pay for squandering grace-given opportunities. That's what, that's what we need to see. That's why this is all here for us. And I hope that that will be made plain as we walk through this. A high price to pay. We're squandering grace-given opportunities. And, you know, we too, we, we know this not just textually. We know this experientially. We, we know, we know the, that, that our own hearts, you know the, the times that we've wasted the gracious opportunities that God has given us to draw nearer to himself. And God is no less active in loving and leading his people today as he was towards Israel. He stops at nothing to make our hearts His. Holy His. He'll do whatever it takes. And, and yet we can waste the opportunities that God, God gives to us. Sometimes those opportunities come in just the lavishing of undeserved mercy on us. And we're, why, would, why would He be so good and kind to us? And other times it comes in the loving discipline of our Heavenly Father. Through suffering and, and, and pain. And yet it's all working to, by God for our good so that we can ultimately live for His glory. I mean, there's all kinds of God's grace, God's grace, God's grace, and yet we waste those opportunities. And the high price for us to pay if you're in Christ, it's not hell, but, but there is a price. It's not wrath. There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's zero wrath. That wasn't. The, there's zero wrath from God Left, it was all poured out upon his son. Yes, praise God. And so there's no wrath. That's not the price. But the price we pay, we do forfeit eternal reward that awaits his children. And we forfeit joy and peace and the abundant life that God wants for us even now. And so don't, don't waste these opportunities. Don't waste your sickness. Don't waste your clean bill of health that you got from the doctor this week. Don't waste your promotion at work. Don't waste your unemployment. Don't waste your F, students. Please, your parents are asking me to say that. <laughs> Don't waste your A, though, either. These are God's, God's opportunities. Don't waste your defeats. Don't waste your victories. Don't squander away. The opportunity God has given you with a family and, 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 and a spouse, singles, don't waste your singleness. You don't waste the broken childhood that you had and the fractured home that you grew up with. I don't know why, but I know that God is sovereign even over that. And He has only good for you to, to intended. And yet don't waste the loving home that you were raised in. 
Don't waste close Christian friendships that God has given you. There's no greater gift, humanly speaking, hardly, than just the experience of our lives. And yet don't waste just those difficult relationships that God has placed in your life. Every morning is a grace-given opportunity given to you. Today is no exception. And yet tomorrow, Monday morning, is no exception either. Don't waste it. Well, this morning we're going to see some ways that we can squander those grace-given opportunities. Some ways that the kings of Israel did, and there's tremendous application for us as well. Some are hard, some hurt, others, again, are nothing but just raw mercy. Um, But all of them are intended for our good. So we're going to look at these kings this morning, and we're going to start. We're not going to make it through all 12 kings, all 12 of the bad guys today. We'll look at... The first eight, and then we'll pick up the next four uh, in a couple of weeks. But this morning, we'll see the kings, and they're going to come in rapid fire here. We're going to cover a lot of ground time-wise. This is the 21st sermon I've preached from Kings, First and Second Kings. And so we've covered 34 chapters up till today. And, and that's covered a period of about 150 years of history. And 34 chapters. Well, this morning and, and then next time, in just a period of, of, of four chapters, we're going to cover 100 years. So you see the time is, is really speeding up. And the story of kings, if you go back all the way to the first sermon I preached, which I know, again, you remember everything I said. Uh, but the story of kings, and one word is this, it's decline. It's decline. The picture of kings is like a, a sink drain, or maybe better, a toilet bowl. <laughs> The dirty water is going round and round. And you know, as the water goes down, the the closer it gets to the drain, the faster it swirls. I mean, that's kind of what we find in Kings. We're slowly declining, slowly declining. But now we get toward the end of 2 Kings and we're moving quick. And it is spiraling fast. And so the disclaimer here, and I alluded to this earlier, is this section is boring. (laughs) And just go ahead and throw that out there. All back, don't freak out. You know why it's boring, though? Because sin is boring. <laughs> sin is, is boring. I, I know it promises excitement, it promises thrill in life, and it does sometimes provide a fleeting pleasure. But, but there is nothing quite as boring as sin after a while. Drunkards are boring people. People, men consume with lust. They live boring lives. Gossips are boring. Money lovers are boring. Self, self-consumed, self-focused braggarts who just talk about themselves. They're boring people to be around. Self-righteous, religious hypocrites are boring people. There's nothing as boring as sin. And so this period of history is boring because there's so much sin. The only thing that saves it is that God is moving. God is moving. And so it's not, we're not going to be bored this morning. That's not what I'm trying to imply. But sin is boring. Now this is all taking place, just to give you some context again. This is in the period of the divided kingdom. The divided kingdom. If you remember, this is going back to the beginning of 1 Kings. God's judgment on Israel because of Solomon's sin. It came after Solomon died. 
And the one kingdom of Israel is divided. Ten tribes to the north, they become Israel, the northern kingdom. The two tribes to the south become Judah and the south. So you have two kingdoms, two kings, two, um, two capitals, two plus religions. And as we've been tracking through kings, sometimes we're looking at the south, Judah. Sometimes we're looking at the north in Israel. And we go back and forth, back and forth. So in chapters 13 to 16, which is where our focus is, the writer of kings goes back and forth several times. So we've been looking at Judah last week, Athaliah and Joash, the boy king. You remember, that's where we left off. And then as chapter 13 opens, the, the writer kind of pushes the pause button on Judah. And he wants to catch us up with what's going on in Israel in the north. And then he'll... Push pause on Israel, bring us back up with what's going on south in Judah. And so that's what we'll see through this section. Now, to help us keep things straight, because I need all the help I can get to keep things straight, we're going to look at the kings of Israel in succession, and we'll back up, and we'll go and look at the kings of Judah next week in succession. So that's, that's how we'll use our time, as opposed to just walking through verse by verse through the text. So we left Israel off with Jehu on the throne. Remember Jehu? It's been a month or so now, I realize. Jehu was the one that was anointed by God to be his instrument of judgment on the house of Ahab. Wicked Ahab, Jezebel. Ahab is king of Israel. And Ahab and his family are the ones who led the entire nation to worship the evil, demonic, foreign god of Baal. And, and just violently propagating Baal worship and suppressing the worship of the true God, killing God's prophets, killing priests. And and just over and over again, though, what we find through Ahab's reign is God shows him mercy. He gives him opportunities, and yet every one of those is spurned. And and so God promises that he's going to raise up one, this Jehu, who would kindly finally come and just totally wipe out Ahab's house and descendants and eradicate Baal worship. And that's what actually happened. And so Jahab did just that. And he established then a new dynasty in Israel. So we have a new, a new family who's reigning over Israel, Jehu and his descendants, instead of Ahab and his descendants. And so things seem to be looking up for Israel, right? The, the idolatrous Ahab is gone and all of his descendants. Now we have this this righteous Jehu, it seems, except, oh, there's always an exception in Kings, isn't there? It just seems over and over, except, what did he do? He allowed the, the worship of these golden calves to continue. Like, it's just crazy. He, he was so zealous to wipe out the idolatry of Baal, but he allows these worship. What is it up with these golden calves? The sin of Jeroboam as it's referred to. It's the religion that was started way back when the kingdom of Israel divided after Solomon died. First king of the northern tribes was Jeroboam. And he invented this religion. That's how it's recorded. He, he made two golden bulls. And you know what he called it? He called it Yahweh worship. He, he, he told the people, he made these golden calves. And in, in 1 Kings twelve twenty eight he said, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Give me a break. And he built temples for these idols. And he appointed priests to, to govern the worship of these idols. And he made new feasts as alternatives to the, the, the feasts that God had appointed. 
And it was this man-made, state-run religion. It basically existed. He used the name of God to control the people of the land. That was why it started. And yet every king since Jeroboam in Israel has continued to propagate the worship of of, of these golden bulls. Even the Baal-smashing, idolater-killing Jehu. And yet God was gracious to Jehu. He said, you know what? Because you did obey me, because you did what I asked you to do in wiping out Ahab's family, I'm going to give you one of your descendants to reign on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so that brings us to where we are. I know it's a long way to get here. Just track with me. Forget the notes. Look at me. All right, 2 Kings 13. We're here now. And we have the first descendant now of Jehu who's occupying the throne of Israel. And his name is Jehoahaz. Verse 1. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam. There you go. Son of Naboth, which he made Israel to sin. And he did not depart from them. Like father... Like son. Verse 3. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria. And into the hand of Ben-Hadad, son of Hazael. Hazael, if you remember, is the pagan king of Syria. When God, told, when God directed Elijah to anoint Jehu as an avenger of his, he also told him to anoint Hazael, king of of Syria. He was to be the foreign instrument of judgment upon the nation of Israel. And so things are bad during this time. They're, they're, they're awful in Israel. Cities are being overtaken. People are forced to leave their homes, run for their lives. I mean, it's scary. The, it, the nation is just falling apart with this oppression from Syria, these invaders. I mean, just, to, just imagine... If somehow ISIS was able to infiltrate the United States and had pockets all throughout the United States and they began to just overtake towns, come into Fayetteville and run people out and killing people along the way. This is the fear, the panic, both in the citizenry and in the leaders of the nation. So that's the context in which we find verse 4. So Jehoahaz, he can't take it anymore. He is, he is so scared for the future of his own life as well as the nation. He has nowhere to turn but the Lord. And so he cries out to God, verse 4, he sought favor of the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior, a deliverer, so they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. What Period in Israel's history, does that sound like there? It sounds like the period of the judges, doesn't it? I mean, this is the same pattern, that cycle that's repeated over and over in the book of Judges. Of, uh, it, it's repeated, it's here, it's Israel's sin arouses God's anger. So God sends this invading foreign army to, to punish his people. And yet they cry out to God for help, for relief, and then God sends a deliverer, a savior. To, to rescue his people. And that's what's happened here. 
So Jehoahaz, he cries out for help when he's backed into a corner, no place to turn. But what does he not do? He doesn't repent. He doesn't turn away from false worship. He's basically saying, you know, I've tried, I've tried the golden calves. They're just not doing it for me. So, Lord, Yahweh, would you please help? Would you come and rescue us? And this is the crazy thing to me, though. God does. He does help them. He's so merciful. He has so much compassion and pity on his people when he sees them suffering. He, he knows they're fickle. He knows they're stubborn. He knows they're stiff-necked. He knows they're just going to waste whatever grace he lavishes upon him. But he just pours it out anyway. And he rescues them. It's just vintage Yahweh. Again. So God sends an army because he wants his people to repent. And yet, they don't turn to God. They don't repent. But they just cry out to God for relief. And so what does God do? He defeats the very same army he sent. Even though there's no repentance. Because he has pity on his people. And then life just goes back to normal. People return to their houses. You know what else they return to? The worship of golden bulls. Right back. Verse 6. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Syria. They still bow to the golden calves instead of the Lord, just like before. And they still bow to these, fake, these, these foreign gods, the Asherah. Just like before. Right there in the capital city of Samaria. And so God showers this undeserved mercy and grace on them. But they waste all this delivering grace. By failing to turn from their dead idols back to the living God. And this is the first thing we get to. We're getting to the first point. And and the first way we squander Grace-given opportunities is when rescue does not lead to repentance. When rescue doesn't lead to repentance, trigger repentance. Have you ever prayed, God, in just desperation, God, I have made a mess of my life right now. Please help me. Get me out of this mess, God. And He does. Because He's merciful. And He has pity on His people. And yet, where does His compassion lead? Did did, did it change you? Maybe you got yourself into a financial mess because of love of money, because of of envy and covetousness or laziness or addictions or gambling. I don't know. But you you got yourself into this mess and debt and all kinds of trouble. And so you, you, you didn't see a way out. So you cried out to God for help. And he brought you through. But did you run back to the idols that you were worshiping when you cried out to God for help? Has God spared you from the consequences of your sin? You should be in jail, folks. You should be divorced, every one of you. You should be diseased and jobless, dead. It's all of us. If the stuff that was in our hearts was expressed and God gave us what we deserved. 
But God, does God's rescue drive you to his breast? Or did the, the joy of deliverance just slowly kind of fade away? And you decide, you know what, I'm just going to roll the dice for sin again. I know that I can always run back to God if I need him. We're squandering, we're wasting God's gracious opportunities when we, we don't allow the, his deliverance, his rescue of us to just drive us to himself and repentance. Don't waste grace by going back to your sinful patterns. That's true for all of us. Well, there's the next king and the next way in which we squander grace. And the next king is Jehoash. This is the second generation, Jehu's grandson now. And he reigns for 16 years and he has the exact same problem that his dad and his granddad had. He's still bowing to the golden calves. The most notable thing about Jehoash, and you also will see it as Joash. Now, this is where it gets a little confusing chronologically here because there's a Joash in Judah. We looked at him last time. The boy king, right? And then we have a Joash in Israel. So, And there's two years where they're reigning at the same time. So I realize that can be confusing to us, but just we're in north north here. And, and so the most notable thing about him is that he's the one who's king when Elisha dies. And the account that Mike read just a moment ago. Elisha's old and sick when we find him in verse 14 of chapter 13. He's served as Israel's prophet for 55 years at this point. And, and yet his end is near. So Joash hears that Elisha is sick and dying, and he runs to meet him with urgency. So verse 14, Joash went down to him, to Elisha, and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Those words sound familiar? That's, that's, the, that's the expression that Elisha used when Elijah was about to depart and be taken up by God. The whirlwind. Why is Joash so emotional here? I mean, get a hold of yourself, man. (laughs) He's old. He's sick. Of course he's going to die. Is it because he's about to lose a close friend? This is just an emotional moment. Is this, are they just these kindred spirits? No. It's because he's about to lose his security detail. (laughs) He's about to lose the one-man army of Israel. He's about to lose their Iron Dome, their missile defense system. That that Syria was the number one threat to Joash's reign. And over and over again, God used Elisha to save Israel from Syria. And yet Elisha is about to die. So he's panicking. He's panicking. Again, there's no real repentance here. There's no brokenness over sin. It's evidence there's no confession of sin. There's no turning from sin, from calf worship. He's just really upset, again, that God's taking away his bodyguard. And so what did God do? Wipe him out? No. He, again, God is so gracious. He shows mercy on the king who's only focused on his own self-preservation. So verse 15, and we have this account, and Elisha says to him, take a bow and arrows, and he goes through this, this process, this, this object lesson, this visual display that's to instruct uh, King Joash, and he, and he tells him to draw the arrow and shoot to the east, and he comes back and he says, this is, 
the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians. This is in verse 17 in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And so then in verse 18, he said, take the arrows now. And he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them, which is the same word that in verse 17 is just to shoot. They're in this upstairs window, shoot the ground with them. And he struck and he shot three times and stopped. Now, Joash doesn't really understand what's happening here. He thinks, apparently thinks this is a little bit silly. And you put yourself in his shoes and we can, we can probably relate to that. But he, he just says, okay, yeah, okay, I'll shoot some arrows into the ground. There. Done. Um, and it's, it's just kind of half-hearted concession for the old prophet. Just humor the guy. He's about to die, he's sick and old. And, but his heart's not in it. His heart's not in it. So verse 19, then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times, then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. And what Elisha's saying is this. He says, I told you God would give you victory over Syria. And that should have aroused in you a confidence and a a zeal in your heart. You should have emptied your quiver. Just keep firing those arrows until you didn't have an arrow left to fire. There should have been this wholehearted response of confidence and, and enthusiasm over what God has just promised to you. But you're just going through the motions. And therefore, because you fired three times, you're only going to get partial victory. Not complete annihilation. Three times. And you know, the king here is representative really of the whole nation. Because what are they doing as a people? They're just going through the motions. Just going through the motions. There's no passionate commitment to the Lord. They don't really believe the depths of the promises that God has made to them. And so then Elisha dies, and even in death, it's a great picture there. God shows his his power through the prophet of Elisha by there's this corpse that's tossed on the bones of Elisha and it comes back to life instantly. The guy walks out. Just picture that if you're the guy who threw the body in there. It's crazy. And and but the writer shows us this. He he also is showing us the symbolic importance of this. I mean it literally happened. I don't mean that. And he's showing the power of God, but there's also a symbolic importance and it's shown by in the language and Verse 23, or excuse me, he, he says that they threw the body. And then he uses that same word through again. And he says, he would not destroy them, nor has he cast or thrown them from his presence. Of speaking of the nation. And, and this is it. The nation on, one, on more than one occasion appeared to be dead. They were dead. But every time the corpse of the nation hit the bones of the prophetic word of God, it sprung back to life. God resurrected them. And so we have this great promise in Ezekiel 37. Valley of dry bones. And one day there's going to be a day. Messiah is going to to raise these dead, dispersed nation. The the dry bones of Israel. And he's going to raise them so they fully return to life. And and, and God's going to put a heart of flesh in them. and, And take the stony heart out of them and give them his spirit. That's sorry, that's another sermon. But everything that God said to Joash came to pass. So the Lord was 
gracious to them, text says, and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them. Nor has he cast them from his presence until now. So notice, it's not Israel's inherent goodness that causes God to pity them. No, it's the promise, his promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob that compels God to show compassion upon them. And God allowed Joash to defeat Syria three times, but no more, just like he promised. So this this brings us to the second way we squander grace-given opportunities. We squander grace-given opportunities when we seek help from God half-heartedly. God says, ask, ask of me. He is not stingy. And yet we come... Reluctantly. This is some of the ways it works. How do you seek help from God? You think you can pretty much do things yourself, but every once in a while there's something that's big in your life and you need a little boost from God. So you go to Him. You ask for a little help. Do you think you can kind of handle the normal stuff of life? Sometimes there's trials, there's pain, there's severe testing. And, it, and then, and only then, you really need God. Seeking God's help half-heartedly. You think God's not really interested or in, in just the normal stuff of life. And when you do seek help from God, do you really believe that He is able to answer and, and come through with power and grace to help you? I mean, even as a church, brothers and sisters, listen. How, how do we feel about our neediness for God? Do we, do we beg Him to help us wholeheartedly? Even as we're talking about this process of, of long-range planning and this Vision 2020, this isn't just a process where we're kind of asking God to help us make a few little minor adjustments and a few tweaks that we may need to make here and there. We have a few areas where we're a little bit weak in. We need to be a little more efficient. That is not it, church. I hope so. We, we need to be on our knees begging for God's forgiveness, help, wisdom, power, working of His Spirit. That's the posture that we need. We, we do not have what it takes. Even our identified strengths are really not that strong. We need God's help in everything. We need more than to just shore up a few weak spots. We need God to... To revive us, church. We, we need God to shake us from our contentment with just kind of religious routine. Coming and going, week in, week out. Listening to sermons, going back, living back to normal life. We need Him to, to shake us from that. We need Him. We, we don't need to just do evangelism better. We need God to break our hearts and, and, and humble us so that we seek forgiveness for not loving the lost like we should. That's what we need. It needs to be that deep heart level, wholehearted cry, God, help. We need you, God. We desperately need you. Make us more aligned with your mission of making disciples, God. It's so what we've gotten, we, we get off so easily. 
So we're not enthusiastic enough. Like Joash, we're not enthusiastic enough about believing the promises of God and begging God to see it come to pass. We're just content to kind of hang on till Jesus comes back or we die. Keep maintenance, my family, keep it together so nothing crazy happens. It's got a moral, moral life, social life, religious life. But we, we folks, we need to be radically changed so that we live on mission with the Lord. So, I, you know, I just I say that's, I'm not, that's not a scold, but that's an exhortation to us. I, I just give you an encouragement. I, I won't mention names, but we had our small group meeting Thursday night, and we've got the best small group. I'm sorry if you're not in it, but uh, yeah, you can object, but it's, it's true. Uh, no, but joking aside, we had great opportunities. I heard from three people, and these, two of these were just informally, just in passing. It wasn't like they asked for prayer even. But one man, had an, I had an opportunity to meet uh, a man that we've been praying for for years, that this brother, co-worker of his, has been sharing Christ with and helping and, and meeting with for, for years now. Still doesn't know the Lord, but just I, I was able to see their interaction and just thank God for that. We had another couple in our group who left our group early uh, after we were finished but didn't stay around and talk like they normally do. And they wanted to, they went home because they had a, one of his co-workers and his wife was coming over to have dessert with them late that night to play games. And they stayed till like 1130 at night, I found out. Not believers, invited them over and have been trying and trying to build relationships with these people. And, and, and oh, that's just, that's the stuff that excites my heart. Then we had another couple who was inviting their neighbors over for pizza this weekend. Um, that's, that's it, church. So I thank God for that it's happening. And, and that's the kind of stuff we, we need. We need to, God to work in our hearts. Help us, God. That this just becomes not exceptional but normal in this church. All right. Third generation. We move on. Third generation from Jehu, his great-grandson. And his name is Jeroboam of all things. We're just all excited now. This has got to be our hope, right? Jehoash has the bright idea to name his kid after the guy who started the whole golden calf worship thing. And guess what? He reigns for 41 years. This is the longest reign in the history of Israel. It's the most illustrious and prosperous reign. There's tremendous military success. All those cities they lost, they take back. All the, there's political expansion. There's financial prosperity. I mean, the borders of Israel during this time rival those of Solomon's day. It's a tremendously prosperous time in Israel's history. And we don't know about much of that prosperity from Scripture. Because the writer of Kings doesn't give a rip. We know about all that from extra-biblical literature. I mean, we know a few things. But, but, but you, you look in extra-biblical literature, and they just laud the reign of Jeroboam. All that was accomplished, all the successes of this king of Israel. And yet, the writer of Kings really only cares about two things. One is this, is that it's God's word, not Jeroboam's skill, that determines the events in Israel. And you see it, that it's the prosperity only happens because of the prophetic word through the prophet Jonah, verse 25. That's it. That's the only explanation that he has. Second, 
that Israel's break from oppression and defeat was the result of God's grace upon his people. And he wants us to know that. They deserve judgment, but God's compassion continued to give them time to repent. And even when judgment finally came, verse 27 says, Israel would not finally be blotted out. There would be a remnant who would go on. God would preserve them. So Jeroboam sees remarkable achievements by human standards, but the writer of Kings yawns. (laughs) Whatever. That's my translation. Because... After all the blessing, all the prosperity that God just lavishes upon Jeroboam and the nation, they do not repent. Wicked worship just goes right on and prospers with the nation. So the third thing, third way we squander grace-given opportunities is is when we mistake God-given prosperity for God-given approval. What, What do you look at to discern God's approval in your life? You, you feel like everything's going well. I've had a good week. God must be happy. Um, financial prosperity. Your income. Comfort. Health. Popularity. Your Facebook friend account. How many followers you have on Instagram. Academic success. College degrees. Young people. Athletic ability. Achievements. Accolades, parents, your obedient children, a healthy family life. Is that, is that what you're looking to? Does that, do you think because God's blessed you in those areas or some of those areas or maybe other areas that you think that must mean that God is not concerned about the habitual sin in your life that you keep harboring? God must be okay with that because he's blessing me. This is how Jeroboam could have thought. He said, well, everything's great. Everything's looking up. I've never been happier. And yet we're still bowing to these golden calves that God said were wicked in his eyes. So we let anger, lust, jealousy, bitterness, unforgiveness, some addictive habitual sin, addiction, fear, worry, Love of money. We just let these things go on because God must be okay with it. And even as a church, brothers and sisters, I, I just, we, need, we, need to, we need God's evaluation of us. I mean, we, are, we, are, we will do the survey, and I'm, and I'm thankful. And I really look forward to reading all of your feedback except for the preaching part. Um, but uh, no, I'm just joking. Please be honest. But I just messed the whole thing up, man. Um, but we really need God's evaluation. Jesus has given those letters in the book of Revelation that tell us there's evaluation of these literal churches in, 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 in this time. And he says things like to the church of Ephesus, a good Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. They don't tolerate false doctrine. They, they endure suffering courageously. But he says, I have this against you. You've abandoned your first love. Therefore, repent. I mean, I'm not trying to point i'm not saying that's he would say that to us but would he he says to the church at laodicea you say i'm rich i have prospered i need nothing jeroboam would have said that what does jesus say to that church he says you don't realize though that you're wretched pitiable poor blind naked Uh, so don't mistake 
we squander grace-given opportunities when we, we instantly assume that blessing means approval from God. Finally, fourth king, uh, fourth group of kings now. The final generation of Jehu's dynasty um, comes to power. Zechariah. And this, peer, this king, with the, with the coronation of this king, we have, we're launched into this period of great instability within the nation of Israel. He sits on the throne for all of six months. He does evil in the sight of the Lord. He walks in the sins of Jeroboam. And boom, that's it. It's over. Time has expired. Everything God promised to Jehu, it happens. And the fourth generation comes and it's done. Zechariah is killed. He's assassinated by Shalom, who becomes the next king of Israel. Verse 10, Shalom gets to be king for one long month. And his reign is so short that the writer doesn't even assess it. There's no assessment to be made, but we know all we really need to know. And it's the fact that he came to be king by murder. And we can assume what characterizes that four-week reign. He's assassinated by Menahem, who becomes king in his place. And Menahem reigns for ten years, which is a long reign for this period in their history. He does evil in the sight of the Lord, and he does it in very sick and depraved ways. Verse 16, it talks about him sacking uh, these cities and he ripping the pregnant women open. And God responds in anger by sending Assyria now, oh, another nation. Sending Assyria against Menahem. Assyria has been this growing superpower to the north and east of Syria. So you go Israel, Syria, then Assyria. And they break through Syria. They invade Israel. They start wreaking all kinds of havoc. And in desperation, Menahem calls upon the name of the Lord, right? No. No, he, he devises his own strategies. He doesn't trust the Lord. So he takes all the wealth of the land and he taxes all of the wealthy people on the land and he puts it all together and he has 10,000 talents of silver. That's 350 tons of silver that he uses to buy off the king of Assyria to leave him alone. And it works. And, but he's basically made himself a vassal of this pagan king. And that's all we really need to know. That's all we know about his reign. He dies and his son Pekahiah becomes king. He's the only king that doesn't get assassinated during this period. He reigns for two years, his son, before he's killed by the next king, Pekah. Pekah reigns for 20 years, kind of. He's more of a puppet king of Syria. He, 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 under his rule, basically Syria and Israel kind of operate as one. He's basically answering to Damascus. And Assyria is concerned about Assyrians, so they try to have this little alliance with Israel. They're calling the shots. And so Assyria does invade. They, they invade Israel. They invade, and Pekah loses huge portions of Israel's territory. People of Israel begin to be deported. You have this first wave of deportation from Israel. And, and this is a punishment that's been hanging over the head of the nation way back, all the way from 1 Kings chapter 8. Said, if if you don't if you don't follow me, this is what's going to happen. And and so people begin to leave, and Israel's on the brink of collapse before Pekah's killed by the one who will be the final king of Israel before uh, before they're completely destroyed. Hosea, we'll look at that in a few weeks. All this blessing, though, all this undeserved mercy, 
all of this goodness that God has lavished upon Israel, and they don't do a thing. They're right back where they began under the severe judgment of God. So the fourth and final way, we squander away grace-given opportunities when we try and take the reins, not to play on words, from God. And we're not putting together coups, overthrowing kings. I know we're in a different dispensation. But, but, but how do we take the reins from God? We, we can be impatient. Not waiting on God. We, we want to force our agenda on our timetable using our methods. Maybe we, we, ha- we think we have pure motives. We want to help God out. Speed it up. But we're not trusting God. We forget that God is not in a hurry. That He has a purpose even in the waiting. We're, we're not patient people. I am not a patient person, church. I mean, this is a struggle. And I miss out on grace-given opportunities by trying to take the reins from God. Try to force my way through. You know, the, the, I think the great picture we saw this couple weeks or last week, excuse me, is that it's the picture of of Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat, these patient pyromaniacs. If you weren't here last week, just you have to listen to see what we're talking about. I mean, they waited. Jehoiada waited six. Eric talked about this in our class this week. Waited six years before acting. He's praying, planning, preparing, persisting, and trusting God. Waiting six years. And then, and then acting. As opposed to these wicked kings who, who just immediately, they put a coup together and they kill the king. They force it. What's well, a despairing picture? I told you, it's a boring passage because their sin is boring. These kings are, they're all bad. All bad. None are good. We, king tells us, kings tells us about a lot of bad kings. But you know why it does that? It, it's it's drawing us to look for the greater king, a better king. We need a better king. We need a king who won't fail. We need a king who, who won't kill to take the throne, but who will lay down his life to reign. We need a king who won't force his own agenda, but who says, my food is to do the will of my father. We need a king who didn't just hear about some dead guy coming up from the grave after falling on the bones of a prophet. We need a king who himself rose from the dead in fulfillment of the prophetic word. We need need a winner, church. We have one. We have Jesus. And, and, And we, we've looked at enough losers. We are losers. We need... We need a winning king, and we want, to, we want him, and we have him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that all of these, these stories, all of the ups and downs, and mostly downs, they point us and they leave us thirsty for a greater king. Thank you that Christ has come. Thank you for the fulfillment of prophecy. Thank you, not just in an abstract cognitive sense, though, but thank you that our, our Messiah, our hope, Life, light, the promised one has come. Our deliverer, our savior, Jesus. Thank you that we will call his name Jesus. We have a name for this king. And he will save his people from their sins. And you have. May you delight in us, God.
But may you, may you cause us to delight more in your son and this greater king, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.